Welcome to Two Rivers. We're glad to be here with you. If you would turn in your Bibles now to Jude chapter one, there's only one chapter right before the book of Revelation at the very end of your New Testament, Jude chapter one. We are week two in our series in this short epistle from Jesus' half-brother Jude, Judah, who came to faith in Jesus after he saw Jesus resurrected from the grave. Uh, We began this series last week, uh, and we talked about kind of the bookends of the passage, uh, the beginning and the end, and, and Jude centering us in the beautiful reality of freedom and God's covenant of grace uh, with us. He writes this book, by the way, encouraging the church to contend for the faith. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's in verse three. That's the purpose of the book, to encourage the church to contend for the truth. And the truth was being uh, negatively impacted by uh, infiltrators, uh, false teachers who were coming into the church. Uh, verse four says, and they were seeking to teach a false message about grace and the false message about grace that the false teachers were coming into the church to teach was this, that grace, that God's grace, actually what it does is it empowers you. It tells you that you can do whatever you want, that grace gives you a license for immorality. And so Jude is saying, we must contend for the truth of God's love and God's grace and contend, fight, have a faith that fights. Our passage this morning specifically is um, verses five to 16. And um, the series is called Contend for the Faith from verse three, uh, verses five to 16. If you're with us last week, we read, th- we read through the whole book. Um, it's a hard passage today. There's lots of examples about hard Things. It's a, it's a passage about uh, God's justice. It's a passage about God's judgment in the last day, the coming of the Lord, and in the justice and the wrath of God, how he judges the sin and the evil of the world. And so it has the theme of judgment and, and wrath and God's holy justice. And it's a harder passage. It's one of those kind of passages that you read if you're alone and you read through it and you're like, ooh, that is a little spicy. I think I'm going to go to the next passage. You know what I mean? You've done that before. And uh, as a teacher, one of the things that I love about teaching through books, expository teaching, is that it, it, it allows us the privilege and the joy uh, and the challenge to work through every passage that God has given us in his word, even the hard things. And so we're gonna engage that courageously through the lens of God's love and grace this morning. My hope is to teach this in a way to have a conversation with you about this passage that stirs up uh, desire in you to receive hard teaching in a way that causes you to have a curiosity, even a desire toward personal transformation, toward sanctification, toward uh, righteousness and holiness in our lives. That's my hope and my prayer today as we look at these verses. Um, Some introductory thoughts after studying this passage over the last few weeks uh, would be this. I want to um, use the example of marriage uh, to kind of set the table this morning. Marriage is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a gift from the Lord to his people. I've been married to my beloved wife, Lindsay, who's right here uh, for 22 years. 
uh, it is wonderful. Marriage is also hard. Marriage is also hard. It's good, it's good, but it is hard. It, marriage, it roots out our selfishness if we're humble enough. If a couple uh, comes to me and they are uh, seeking premarital counseling and they wanna be married and they're like, yes, we're so excited to be married. We can't wait. This is gonna be so easy. I really think that marriage is gonna be so easy. My counsel to them would be don't get married. We'll just say it in the first meeting. Probably don't get married. It's good. It's sanctifying, but marriage isn't easy. The message of Christianity welcomes radically inclusive, welcomes all people, all people who would come to believe and receive Jesus and his work on the cross, his resurrection for our salvation. That is easy for us. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. My yoke is easy and my burden is light to people who are living under the law. That is rest for us. That is hope for us. That is joy for us. But Christianity also calls all who come to Jesus into discipleship, into this journey of becoming more conformed of Romans 8, 29 to the image and likeness of Jesus, whom we call Lord and Savior. Discipleship is good. It's sanctifying, but it ain't easy all the time. Amen out there, anyone? And it's actually going to cost us. It's going to cost us. And that's good for us. I was reminded of uh, John 6 this week uh, from a study that I do with some coaches at Rocky. I'm on the basketball coaching staff there. And uh, we were engaging on this passage on Tuesday morning. And I thought, well, that's a really good introduction for what, what um, we're going to do at Two Rivers on Sunday morning. Uh, John chapter 6, uh, if you know the story, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's making this statement about what it means to like, truly understand and know and receive the way of Jesus. And he says in John 6, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last days. And it's interesting, uh, John 6, verse 66. John 6, 6, 6. Are you with me right now? John 6, this is what it says. This is what it says. And many of his disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying or this is hard teaching. Who can listen to it? And after many of his disciples turned back, John 6, 66, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, this isn't talking about the 12 disciples. It's talking about people who are following in the way of Jesus and they're hearing Jesus teach, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, obviously thinking about unless you receive the work of the cross, for you in your place, you have no part with me. This is a hard teaching. And many disciples who are following, listening, coming to gatherings like this, they say, this is too hard, I'm out. I am out. So Peter, he looked to the 12 and he said, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, the words, the word of God the very words of Jesus, you have the words of eternal 
life. Where else would we go? Question for you to consider this morning as we get into Jude chapter one. What do you do when you come to teaching from Jesus and his word that is hard? When you come to teaching from Jesus and his word that is hard and it, 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 it gives you a crossroads a bit of going, am I gonna follow my flesh and what I want in my life or am I going to submit my life to the way and the teaching of Jesus and his word? What do you do when you come to those kind of places that is hard? As parents, Lindsay and I uh, say this to our kids a lot. You can do hard things. This is too hard. Guess what? You can do hard things. And you must learn to do hard things in life. Why? Because life is hard. And we must learn to do hard things. You must do hard things. And as your pastor, I'm saying this to all of us, we can, we can listen to hard teaching and we can trust in the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God to give it to us and we can be transformed by it, amen? We can receive direct hard teaching that comes against the way of the world and it comes against the way of our flesh and receive it to let it fall fresh on us and know that the goodness of God is leading us in the way of everlasting. And we must learn to do this. Last week, uh, we talked about this in Jude chapter one. Do you have a faith that fights? Contend for the faith. Have a faith that contends, that fights. This week is this. Do you have a faith that is gritty enough, gritty enough to hear some hard things and allow it to transform you to become more like Jesus. Last week, God is serious about his mercy, about his peace and about his love. This week, God is also serious about his justice and his right judgment toward sin and evil in the world. Jude, certainly, if you have were with us last week, or if you um, have read the book, we're gonna read the passage again this morning. He is exceedingly clear about the destruction of evil and sin. We can't get around that when we come to this passage. Exceedingly clear, and we are going to take a courageous look at it and consider it for our own journeys. Brief context, brief context. Again, Jude, Judah, Jude, Judah, half-brother of Jesus, certainly wrote his letter to Messianic Jews. Why do we understand that? Why do we believe that? Because the examples, there are six examples that Jude will give us in our passage today of, of no, no, notorious sinners, if you will, no, no, notorious stories from the Old Testament and some ancient Jewish literature that these people would have been really, really, really familiar with. He is writing to a Messianic Jewish Audience. They were very familiar with these Old Testament scriptures and these other Jewish literature stories. And he uses these examples to refute, again, why did he write the book? To refute the false teachers who were infiltrating the church. And he uses all these examples to refute the corrupt and false teachers who were living immoral lives and who were teaching, again, verse four, that grace opens the door for everyone else to do the same. Verse four is why Jude is writing the book, why he writes it. Because of the false teachers, grace gives you a license. And that's verse four. 
verses 5 to 16 is his elaboration on verse 4. So here the why is verse 4, and his unpacking, his elaborating on his why is the passage this morning in verses 5 to 16. Let me read this again uh, with you out loud so that we are um, freshly engaging with what Jude is saying to us. Verse 5, though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their, they did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for the judgment on the great day, speaking of the second coming of Jesus. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And they served as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers, he's speaking about the false teachers, he's calling them dreamers. These dreamers, we'll unpack that here in a few minutes. These dreamers, they, they put, they pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and they slander celestial beings. But even the ark angel Michael. This is an example, by the way, of something that Jude is pulling from ancient Jewish literature, not directly from the Old Testament, but something that these Messianic Jews would have certainly known about from their writings. The archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him. What he's saying here is even the archangel Michael understood his position of authority and he would not step out of his position position of authority. He was in submission to God. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men, juxtaposing the archangel Michael with these men, they speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do not understand by instinct. They are like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them or much sorrow to them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for the prophet into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men, I'm reading the NIV, it says, blemishes at your love feast. That could also be read, these men are hidden reefs at your community meals. What he's saying to the church is when you get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and this vertical opportunity of intimacy with God like this. And then after you have a meal and you break bread together, this horizontal, beautiful fellowship, uh, the word love here is agape. This is talking about the beauty of the church having fellowship together. And he's calling these false teachers a hidden reef. You think about a, a boat in the sea and a hidden reef. You don't know it's there. And the boat goes up on the reef and they get stuck and they get destroyed. That's what he's talking about. They're hidden reefs. They lay in hiding at your community meal in the gathering of the church together. They are shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. They are autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. They are twice dead. The wild ways of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the darkest, blackest darkness has been reserved forever. 
Enoch, the seventh from heaven, Jewish history again. Enoch, the seventh from heaven, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands at his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires for they boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. And we read that and we think, this church didn't know who these people are. They're like wolves with sheep's clothing. And Jude is trying to wake, wake them up to what is going on in their fellowship. These are hard realities. Um, lots of examples here, um, really six Old Testament examples. Again, Messianic Jews, they would have been super familiar with all of these examples. I read these things and some of you are in, in here are probably like, what, what's that chorus story again? Because that's, that's what I was like when I read through. I was like, what's chorus story again? We're in a staff meeting and Becca's like, isn't that the story where they came against Moses and the earth? I was like, oh yeah, that is that story. So what I thought would be helpful for us is to kind of just walk through some of these stories that Jude is using to wake us up so that we would heed the instruction. And so we're just gonna, I wanna just spend a little time, not a ton of time, to just walk through each of these examples from the Old Testament. Now, the first he starts with is the Exodus story. Um, six examples of sin and judgment that God's justice is coming against. And we get the Exodus story in verse five. Again, Moses leading the Hebrew people from their slavery in Egypt. Um, do you remember that the people uh, who God delivered from Egypt, the original people that God delivered from Pharaoh in Egypt that crossed through the Red Sea, do you remember that they, those people never went into the promised land? Do you remember that? They get all the way to the edge of the promised land and they send uh, Joshua and Caleb to spy the land and everyone was afraid. Why? Because there's giants in the land and we're too afraid. But only Joshua and Caleb were believing God to take the land of Canaan. The people, they were dismayed at the strength of the people and they failed to trust God to give them victory. And so as a result of that, God sentenced that entire generation to wander in the wilderness. Anybody know how many years they wandered? 40 years until what? Until every person of that generation had physically died and their children and their children's children, those were the people with, not even Moses got to go and he got to look at the promised land uh, from Mount Nebo, which is just on the other side of the Dead Sea. He got to see it, but he didn't get to lead the people in. Joshua led the people in with um, Caleb too the promised land. This is what Jude references when he says in verse five that God destroyed those who did not believe. First example. Second example, this is a wild story. Uh, if you remember this story, uh, angels who usurped God's authority. This is from Genesis chapter six. And so I'm using this for you to go back later and read these stories and perhaps even increase your biblical literacy about all these stories that Jude is picking up. But this story is in Genesis six, angels who usurped God's authority, holy angels. God had created them for a very specific uh, sphere of influence. And these angels were so pleased with their supernatural power of influence that they decided to use it, hear this, for their own selfish reasons and their own glory instead of God's purposes and glory. They left 
coming under the rule and the authority of God and they went out on their own away from the authority of God. These angels were kept in darkness and bound until the great second coming where they will face their eternal judgment. They did not keep their assigned position and so God is keeping them in darkness until the great second coming of Jesus. Third story that Jude uses, Genesis 18 and 19. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a story about this great sin, these great sins, these grievous sins, it says in Genesis 18. Genesis 18, 20, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that God in Genesis 18, when we read Genesis 18 and 19, God was already determined to smite the entire cities and those cities around them. And he sent two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah and they go into the square. You know the story and Lot was there. He's like, you can't stay in the square. You've got to come to my house. You cannot stay in the square in this place. And so they come into the house. Many of you probably know the story and the men of the city, old and young, show up at Lot's house, banging on the doors banging on the doors so that they can have relations. I'm gonna be careful with my language for the young people with the two angels who were men inside the house. And then God blinds everyone around and Lot, who was hosting and his family, his wife, leave the city and God destroys the city. Peter picks this up. Jude picks it up in our passage today. Peter also picks up this story in 2 Peter 2, 6 and 9. We think about what was it, what was so grievous? Peter says this in verses 6 to 9, 2 Peter, he said, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, reducing them to ashes as an example of what is coming on the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man distressed by the depraved conduct of lawlessness, for that righteous man, speaking of Lot, living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and that he heard. And that is why in Genesis 18, God had already determined to send two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 and destroy. What is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Pride, pride. I will not live under the authority of God. And that pride manifested itself in all kinds of immorality. This is what was tormenting Lot because he was seeing and hearing the manifestation of the people's pride doing whatever they wanted to do whenever they wanted to do it. Again, Genesis 19, the two men were God's angels to get there. And we know the story that happened after that. And God judged and destroyed the cities because they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. In verse seven, what Jude says is, they serve as an example of those who suffer the judgment and the wrath of God. Take heed of what it's like to not live under the loving authority of God. These are serious, serious stories. 
Um, next one, Genesis 4, the story of Cain. Cain murdering, Genesis 4, right at the very beginning of the Bible, Cain murdering his brother Abel out of this fit of jealousy and anger and rage. Fifth example is Numbers 22 to 24, verse 11, the sin of Balaam and his talking donkey. You guys remember that story when you were a kid? You're like, the talking donkey of Balaam. This story is pretty serious as well. You've got this evil king uh, of um, Moab, the Moabites, the uh, enemies of God. And he was, the, uh, Balak was nervous about the armies of Israel coming against him. So he gets a prophet of God named Balaam and he wants Balaam to invoke a curse against Israel. And so he summons Balaam. And so Balaam decides, oh, I'll invoke a curse against God's people for some cash. So he gets on his donkey and he's heading to meet with Balaam. And then on his way, the donkey keeps going off. Of course, pretty funny story. If you haven't read this in a while, go back and read Numbers 22 to 24. Uh, the donkey keeps going off course. And then Balaam keeps like beating the donkey, you know, like stop going off course. He's beating the donkey until finally, I think it's the third time maybe, um, the donkey talks. He's like, Eek. Brohim, why you keep beating me, dog? Let's end all this like beating me stuff, right? Like the, the donkey's like Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia. We got talking donkey right in the text. And he's like, why do you keep beating me? And God sends an angel because Balaam is so determined to go to Balak and utter this curse against Israel. And God sends an angel and blocks the way. Balaam repents. And he doesn't end up going. But it's interesting, as you continue to read through the story, although Balaam eventually refuses to do what Balak wants, he wavers enough in his loyalty under the authority of God to justify leading Israel into sin for monetary gain. Jude uses it as an example of what it, this is what it looks like to not live under the authority of God. Sixth one. Korah's rebellion, Numbers 16, grim consequences for Korah. He was usurping the authority of Moses. And by doing so, he was usurping the authority of God because God gave Moses to be an authority over God's people. And so by usurping the authority of Moses, he was usurping the authority of God himself. Korah, he gathered 250 other dudes and they go to challenge Moses' authority. And so Moses, he's like, let's, let's, let's just have a test. Let's have a test of who is in authority here to prove that. And so Korah and his followers, they did not pass the test and God opens up the earth, literally opens up the earth and all 250 men who are coming against Moses go into the earth and God swallows them up by his justice and his judgment. And then the very following day, instead of being convinced that God had vindicated Moses and Aaron, the congregation, they saw this happen. They saw Korah and 249 other men get swallowed up in God's justice. And they still, the very next day, they are complaining that God had killed the Lord's people, that, that Moses had killed the Lord's people. And for this act of rebellion, God threatened to destroy the whole congregation. He was going to bring, just like the flood, he was gonna wipe all of the Hebrew people out. And Moses pleaded before the Lord. 
He threatened to destroy the whole congregation. He sent a plague among them. Moses and Aaron interceded for the people and they averted a complete and total catastrophe. And in the end, hear this, 14,700 Israelites died because they would not come under the authority and trust God's loving rule in their lives. Why? What do we take from all these heavy, hard, what do we take from this? How do, how do we, in 2020, at Two Rivers Church, Fort Collins, Colorado, how do we discern and heed and understand the relevance of this in our lives? And I'd like to offer two big points uh, for your consideration as uh, applications for us, if you will, this morning. And the first is this, um, freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ does not mean that we are free to do whatever the we want to do. That is not freedom in Christ. That is what the false teachers were teaching. Paul writes this to the, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Everything is permissible for me. Freedom means freedom. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial for me. We have to have discernment in our freedom. And the crux of the issue, again, for Jude is back to verse 4. False teachers leading people to believe that grace gave them a license to do anything they wanted, even immoral things. Jude says they are like unreasoning animals who operate by instinct. He's basically saying like, they operate like dogs in heat. That's, that's what it's like. If you want a visual picture of what it's like to take the grace of God as a license for immorality, have the visual picture. It's like dogs in heat. They have no moral compass whatsoever. That's the example that Jude uses. They pollute, he says this, they pollute their own bodies. They pollute their own bodies. That's what Jude says in our passage, Paul picks that up as well in 1 Corinthians 6. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is meant for sexual intimacy within the beautiful context of covenant marriage. That is what God has given it as a gift to his people. Within the context of covenant marriage, the body is meant for intimacy. But outside of that covenant context, it is not under the loving rule and authority of God. And so Paul says the very next verse, first Corinthians, or a few verses down, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. In other words, run away from it. Nothing affects your body the way this does. And in doing so, you sin against your own body. That's what Paul, the great freedom fighter, the the great grace preacher, Paul says, be careful. Stay under the loving authority of God as it relates to your bodies. Freedom in Christ does not mean we are free to do whatever we please, first point. Second point that I would encourage you to consider this morning is this. Freedom in Christ does mean the freedom to live under the loving authority of God. Freedom in Christ does not mean we get to go and do whatever we please. Freedom in Christ means that we get to be in submission, trusting in the loving rule and the authority of God in our lives. 
I think the theme of this, uh, if, if I was gonna think like, what is the theme? Those six examples that we unpack, what's the theme of those six things that Jude unpacks? And I think the theme of all six examples is this in verse eight. And it says, they reject authority. They reject authority. These false teachers, they reject authority. And as an example, here's what it looks like to reject authority, all six of those examples that Jude mentions. And the rejection of authority and their own self-absorption betrays their claim to follow Jesus. Jude calls the men who has secretly slipped in, he calls them dreamers. They have these visions, they're communicating. Oh, we've, got this, we've got this vision from God, we're these dreamers, we have this vision from God. And the, the new vision from God says that grace means that we can do whatever we want to do. He calls them dreamers. They will not stand under the authority of God. They stand under and on their own relative dreams and visions. And I think for me, this is the linchpin of the passage, verse eight, they reject authority the linchpin of the passage. They refuse to be under the authority of God and in doing so, they commit the same sins as all of these famous sinners that Jude mentions. Their authority is their own dreams. Not, not God's spirit through his word, which is was Jesus's authority, which is what Jesus modeled for us in the gospel, think about this for a second with me. Matthew chapter four, Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness, the great temptation that Jesus undergoes by Satan himself. Uh, go read this later, it's in Matthew chapter four. Jesus's authority was in God. Do you remember, it happened three times. Do you remember what Jesus said each time he was tempted? He said one phrase each time he was tempted. Anybody remember? It is written. Satan comes with a temptation, with a lie. And he goes, for it is written. Written where? Written in the scriptures, written by the word of God. I'm under the authority of the loving rule of my own father. He says it three times. It is written, it is written, it is written. One of the things he says is man does not live on bread alone, but on every word, on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you trust do you submit? Do you follow? Do you come under the authority? Do you allow the loving goodness of God like a surgeon, a good surgeon, help you remove things in our life that keep us from the fullness of being Jesus' people? The false teachers, they leave this model. What, what model do they leave? They leave the model of Jesus who says it is written. They despise God, they despise his authority and they make themselves their own authority by their own dreams and ideas and notions serving as their guide. Hear this, this way of thinking and living, it is an echo chamber of self, which is the recipe of hell. This is the linchpin of the passage, they reject authority. The false teachers, they justify their own sin on revelatory visions that they claim to have received. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. Dreams, visions must always be in submission to the revealed authority of God's words. They are not relative. And if they are of God, 
new visions, revelation must be in alignment with what's already been revealed to us. We don't wanna totally just dismiss prophecy, dreams, visions, certainly not. God can speak certainly outside of his word, but God would never speak outside of his word that is in contradiction to his revealed word, amen? And so we must be discerning in these things. Uh, We don't wanna dismiss them. God still uses visions as a means to communicate with us, but we must insist that any claimed vision or prophetic message must conform to the truth of God as revealed in the scriptures. They rejected authority. Lord, we want to trust you and live under your loving authority even if it means that I need to become aware of some things that need to be rooted out of my life because you're good and you're conforming me more and more into your image. God, his grace saves us and his grace transforms us. Grace rescues us. We talked about this last week. Grace rescues us from the law. And grace also rescues us from the devastating reality of sin in our life. And grace rescues us to, it rescues us from law and sin. And it rescues us to, hear this, righteousness, Christ-likeness. This, this is the way that God is leading us. Next week, the passage will say, keep yourself in God's love. Keep yourself in God's love. We'll talk about that next week. And when we keep ourselves in God's love, we trust in God's leadership, his direction, even his rebuke in our lives. Why? Because he is a good father and he is transforming us by his grace. Uh, Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that I, we, would have the courage and faith in your grace and goodness to receive teaching, an example after example after example from Jude of things to be aware of as an example for us so that we would trust you and your way and not go the way of the world and of our flesh. You have freed us, truly freed us. And Lord, we want to have discernment in our freedom to grow up in grace and to be more conformed. Thank you for this teaching. Thank you for Jude. Thank you for uh, this word that we have received today. May it be transforming to our minds and our hearts and our very lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.